Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm OK. I've actually seen you in real life. We had a, a real life adventure. I know. It was so nice. I know. <laughs> we actually we met up because you have been, as is the phrase now, gadding about, doing all sorts of interesting things. Can you tell us about any of them? Yes, indeed. I've been at the Cambridge Literary Festival, which was great fun. I've got fantastic news from mm. an interview that I did with the gardener, Sarah Raven. Wonderful. Who says that we are not to worry if we don't feel on top of everything at this point in the spring. There is still time to do it all. And she gave me brilliant advice about how to deal with the problem of hairy aphids on my dahlias. Oh, <laughs> Hairy aphids. My dahlias were so bad last year. I didn't. The hairy aphids didn't even bother. So I think you're doing well. That's wonderful to hear. And I'm actually going to be talking to her at Hay. So go on. Yes, tell us anyway. She was fantastic, and I can't tell you. I mean, she really. She'll answer anything, and you ask her. I mean, I didn't push it much beyond gardening. I don't mean like, I don't mean that, <laughs> you know. But she did. I mean, I turned it obviously into my own personal garden clinic, and she says. If you, and I'll share this with you listeners, if you too have a hairy aphid problem, bird boxes and bird feeders are your answer. Encourage the birds and they will oh. get rid of the aphids. My only, my personal worry is that if I attract a lot of birds to a specific garden area, I'm essentially creating a kind of Roman games for my cats. Mm. That is the problem with that. But that I didn't feel I could ask her to solve that problem too. No. Come here, unsuspecting birds, and see what happens, that kind of thing. Yes. Mm. Yes, exactly. I think maybe that's just the moment at which, you know, I try and keep the cats in for a bit. But anyway, yes, I was at the Cambridge Literary Festival where I did all manner of very, very different events and interviews. It was wonderful. I talked to Sarah Raven, as I said. I talked to the former model and photographer, Patty Boyd, chatted to Jacqueline Wilson, went to a wonderful event with Matthew Hollis, the author of The Wasteland, a biography of a poem, who'd made a fantastic kind of almost like a film lecture 
and talk about the creation of the wasteland by Elliot and by Pound and by Vivian Elliot too. And that was incredibly moving and really interesting. And I finished it all off with having a literary lunch with Bonnie Garmus, the author of Lessons in Chemistry. I was very honoured that in the middle of that, I came to London to attend Dame Hilary Mantel's memorial service at Southwark Cathedral. And that, as you can imagine, was a phenomenally moving and inspiring event. And I feel very lucky to have been there. It was wonderful. Mm. Extraordinary people, as you would expect, were reading at it. Mark Rylance, Ben Miles, both of whom have played Thomas Cromwell. Also, other novelists, Sarah Waters, Zadie Smith, Anne Enright. It was just, it was marvellous. It was a real, it was a celebration. It was marvellous. It was, I mean, not exactly joyful, but it wasn't sort of, it wasn't sad. It was in a celebratory spirit, as it were. It was joyful. And actually, among all those names that I've just reeled off, you know, that are so recognisable to us, there were also other very, very much more personal moments, including one from her a schoolhood friend and it was a wonderful speech tribute about how they would read together and that that would be their kind of safe haven they would gather to read together and talk about books when they were in their teenage years and how that had been just an immensely kind of important well place for them to think about things and to think about their love of books and of reading and that was just a, a wonderful tribute and then at the end of my weekend, the very last thing I did was to go to a lecture given by Ali Smith. And in fact, I won't talk about that now because I think we might talk about it a little bit later with one of our guests. So coming up on this week's show, we have Laurie Maguire on the stage adaptation of Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet at the RSC in Stratford. And we go to London to meet American novelist Curtis Sittenfeld. But first... We've been talking about theatre recently and specifically about bringing complex literary works to life on stage. And this week, just after Shakespeare's birthday, we have another. Maggie O'Farrell's much-loved and lauded novel Hamnet, set in Stratford, is now on in, you guessed it, Stratford at the RSC. Laurie Maguire, Professor Emeritus at Oxford University, who teaches Shakespeare there and is currently writing a biography of Shakespeare's daughter Judith, went along to see the play and has written about it brilliantly for us, so we're delighted to welcome her today. Laurie, many thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Hello. It occurred to me that it's a kind of ambitious undertaking in a way, is it? Tackling a novel that presents the Shakespeare family in Stratford at the RSC in Stratford. Do you think it's an obvious move or is it quite a daring thing to do? It's both, isn't it? I mean, I think Erica Wyman, the director, said that when she first read the novel, she thought RSC has to do this. We are an obvious place for this. And it's lovely for a town that's based on William Shakespeare to be doing something about Agnes Shakespeare or Anne Shakespeare, as we know her more familiarly. The more daring gesture is trying to dramatise Maggie O'Farrell's magnificent novel of interiority. I mean, obviously, theatre does tragedy, theatre does emotion, theatre mm. does anguish. We've got Euripides, we've got the Trojan women, we've got Hamlet and so on. But there is something immaculately choreographed internally about the Maggie O'Farrell novel, partly because it's the woman's point of view and partly because it's a child's point of view. And interior emotions is actually what Maggie O'Farrell does best. It's what she's been doing for 20 years. So that was a tough ask. Mm. Well, as you said, Anne, who is known as Agnes here, 
she's very much the centre and the focus of the play and the book, her kind of consciousness and her person, isn't she? Yes, she is. And her oddness, her spirituality, her premonitions. And the theatre, they turn that into drama by having all kinds of offstage acoustics. So she's in touch with another world. Uh, She's given a speech in the play in which she explains the division between this world and the next world in spatial terms. It's a room with walls, but some people can hear and talk across the walls. But the novel spends a lot of time building up her contacts with nature, which the theatre here doesn't have time to do. So it's really left to, you know, the offstage acoustics to say, okay, something else is happening here. And for Agnes herself, who says at one point to her husband, do you think I'm odd? So we get, you know, blunt statements doing work that's much more subtly developed across the course of the novel. Would you say it was then quite elaborately staged in order to to try to provide that interiority that you were talking about? Actually, not elaborately, because one of the things that the production does so well is it manages to translate into theatrical terms the spareness of Maggie O'Farrell's historical writing. One of the things that's so unusual about Hamnet, the novel, is how little historical detail you actually need to create a historical atmosphere. So Maggie O'Farrell gets enormous mileage out of a nutmeg here and another herb there or, um, you know, a squeaking owl. And the stage designer does that very well with a bare stage that's got a kind of A-frame architecture like the A-frame of the house and everything else is trays of apples or sheaves of wheat or folding linen. So it's very economically and beautifully done, which also enables many locations, you know, inside and outside, glove makers workshop, women's kitchen and so on. So it's not elaborate, it's very evocative. And that bit, I think, is very successful. And the A-frame architecture, which is made so much of in the novel, because Agnes, you know, has literary abilities. And one of the things she reads so well is the world, and she reads people. And she points out that the A-frame of the house is the A of her name. And then after the interval, when Shakespeare's made some money and the family's moved to a new place, that A opens up entirely and we're now into a big open space. So the design serves the production very well. It sounds like it's a very different kettle of fish from the kind of Wolf Hall approach. So it's not aiming in any way to give a kind of social or political, you know, snapshot or anything like that. It's very much about these people in this family? Is that why do you think she's not giving you the whole panoply? She's just giving you a nutmeg? That's right, isn't it? It's the details. And of course, Maggie O'Farrell's novels are all very good on that. It's a different kettle of fish from Wolf Hall. It's also a different kettle of fish, actually, from the novel, because in the second half, after the interval, not only does the house open up, but the play world opens up, because Maggie O'Farrell keeps us very much in Stratford. Um, This is a woman's world. It's a domestic world. It's Agnes-centric world. And Stratford is Agnes's centre. And it's Agnes's centre for 
domestically protective maternal reasons. The novel gives the Judith twin, the Judith character, a weak chest. And although the sort of marital plan has been to move the household to London, the view is that Judith would not survive the smoky city. So Agnes stays protectively at home with her children. And then that enables a very redemptive last scene in the novel when husband and wife come together in the Globe when Agnes goes to London for the first time. In the play at Stratford, Chakrabarti, Lalita Chakrabarti, the adapter, intercuts rehearsal scenes. So we see William's London life. And in a way, I think that's kind of theatrically necessary, although it then dilutes the focus on women. And it's theatrically necessary in the way that the chorus is necessary in Greek tragedy, that when you've got that amount of internal grief, pain, anguish. The audience needs a break. The novel can keep that going. And of course, Farrell intercuts it because she doesn't do a linear timeline. So she's able to move back and forward with chronology. And so what dilutes the focus on women is also necessary to make the audience be able to handle the emotion that is being presented. Is it also, I wonder, bringing into play that idea that what we think of as the central thrust of Shakespeare's life, which is writing, obviously, and rehearsing in the Globe and the world of the theatre, the thing that has survived of him to posterity is sort of then put side by side with another version of creativity, what is at that point constrained in the A-frame house. There's also creativity and generative going on there. I wonder if that was the point of that sort of juxtaposition. Yeah, and actually, I think that the play does a very good job of exploring those kind of doublenesses and those potentials and what might have been in other circumstances. And most obviously, you see it in women. But they do something very clever with doubling, where, you know, the brutal father, John Shakespeare, is doubled and he plays Will Kemp, a London actor, and has you know, very creative speeches about theatre. But there's a glimpse that in Stratford, John Shakespeare could have been someone else if he had had a different set of opportunities, because he's given a wonderfully lyrical speech that's not in the novel, where he talks about the glove maker's trade. And he talks about it in a way that makes you think, this man has a soul. He's not just a drunken brute, a violent husband, a violent father. This man has a sensitivity because he talks about glove making a selling touch and that a hand can be a fist that does violence or it can be an open palm. Now, that's an amazing concept. And then you, you just think, so he could have been someone else. And the doubling makes you think that people are composed of two sides. And we see the Agnes creativity and what she has enabled is her husband by helping him get to London. And that's, of course, where it's always tricky for women, because reductively, what you're saying is behind every successful man, there's yes. a woman. What kind of praise is that for the woman? And I think that's something that the novel perhaps doesn't negotiate entirely successfully, and neither does the play, except that they both agree in the husband and wife coming together through theatre. 
when Agnes sees Hamlet on stage and realizes that her husband's not been taking their son's name in vain, he's been trying to bring him back to life and he's been trying to sacrifice himself as father for the son. And what you see is that theater is just a doubled activity as well. You've got an actor who's a real person, but you've got the character that they're playing. You've got the you know immediate involvement of theater, but you know that Tomorrow it'll happen all over again. So there's a wonderful theme of doubleness that the novel has that the play deals with differently because it turns it into theatrical terms. And that's where, in being different from the novel, the play is actually very successful. It's so interesting. That's immediately put me in mind. Remember last week, Lucy, we were talking to Emily Bourne about the role of women in the welfare state and in in the National Health Service. And one Mm. phrase that we, we came back to a couple of times was, the labour disappears, the business of raising children and care. Yes, yeah, the work vanishes, yeah. And that's, in a sense, one of the themes that's being brought out here, isn't it? I mean, coincidentally, I've just been at a conference all day in Stratford on the women who are not in the archives but were in Shakespeare's life. And that is, you know, do we want to glorify domesticity or do we want to turn it into... Well, I suppose a creative act is glorifying domesticity. But what Agnes has been given, both by O'Farrell and in the play, is agency. She makes choices. She does unorthodox things. She's in charge. And that, to me, is very important. Mm -hmm. It sounds as though Lolita Chakrabarti has... I was going to ask whether she'd followed it very closely or given herself some artistic leeway, but from what you say, it sounds like she has... She has opened it out a bit. And as you say, in some ways it that dilutes the focus, but in some ways it's necessary. It sounds as though she's kind of breathed a bit of life into it. Not that there wasn't life into it, but that she's not afraid to add, not just to say, here is the book on stage, as it were. I think that's absolutely right, because in a way, dramatising that novel by Maggie O'Farrell is like taking on you know, a canonical Shakespeare and doing something mm. with it because that novel <laughs> is so celebrated, justly, it's so loved. And, you know, if you think in a similar way, when you go and see a film version of something you've read, you're already doing comparisons in your mind. So she's having to dramatise something that was very subtly and carefully done. I mean, Maggie O'Farrell writes about grief and Maggie O'Farrell writes about twins. And the Hamlet story was just heaven sent for her. You know, she hadn't done much in the way of historical fiction. And this was a story that played right to her strengths and to her career-long interests. She writes in lyrical present tense and she juxtaposes narratives. So Chakrabarti did what biographers do, which is give us a linear chronology. And in a way, she pretty much had to do that. And what that means is that the first half of the play has a kind of dutiful feel about it, because it was clear that everyone in the audience knew the book. And it was like, come on, we're waiting for the moment when the twins are born, because then the Grim Reaper will appear and then we'll get responses. Obviously, you're documenting on stage the courtship of Anne and Will, and it does everything very economically, but there is a lack of pace that we then get in the second half. So she's changed O'Farrell in the first half, but not necessarily done the, the novel a service. In the second half, she 
introduces these new scenes and they work for the theatre's needs. They don't necessarily make the play as emotional as the novel is. But the other thing that she does right early on is she uses some lines from Romeo and Juliet. And then in the second half, the chamber of this men are rehearsing Romeo and Juliet. And if you think about why she chose that play as opposed to any other Shakespeare play, Romeo and Juliet was innovative in that it was dramatizing something that had actually only been presented in sonnet form, which was intense emotional interiority. So there's a lovely kind of theatrical knowingness about her adaptation, which I think is quite Shakespearean. Mm. She also adapted Life of Pi on yeah. stage. This is just a sort of side thing, which I saw, which you'd have thought actually would be very difficult to do. And actually it was, it was brilliant as well because it made sense of, of some competing narratives and it didn't duck the real issues. It's very clever and it kind of opened it out in a way that, this sounds as though it does as well. Yeah, and it becomes a celebration of theatre. That's what came across very clearly in the second half because the pregnancies of Agnes were beautifully depicted as theatre. Um, you know, she linen was wound around her, you know, to make a pregnancy bump. It's like, okay, theatre is doing this for you. This is not, you know, suddenly a woman coming on, you know, looking like she's expecting a baby. We are showing you how we make that happen on stage and the most grief-stricken moment for me was when after young 11-year-old Hamlet's died they're dismantling his bed his sick bed his bedroom and you know that is such a kind of final moment in any relative's life when you start to dismantle the material elements of their life and Mantok's anguish at that moment you know, was just magnificently portrayed, but it was like striking a theatre set, taking Hamlet's bed apart. And so uh, I mean, the play ends, you know, very dramatically in one of the ways that plays can end with a blackout. And they had really prepared for that moment by making you feel, is that total extinction, that blackout? Or are we going to see this again tomorrow? You know, is there the potential for renewal in life or is it the end. It depends on if you want to think theatrically or not. So all the theatre stuff in the second half was very nicely interwoven with thinking about what finality means. Mm. We must ask you, since you're writing a forthcoming biography, I think, are you, about Judith, the surviving twin of Hamnet? What was it like seeing her on stage? Did you recognise her? I was very pleased to see her created on stage because one of the things that drew me to Judith is I'm calling her the cutout girl because she is always cut out of things. She's cut out of narratives. Virginia Woolf writes A Room of One's Own about a Judith Shakespeare writer, but she invents her as a fictional sister of Shakespeare, not using the real Judith. Mm. She's not in The Upstart Crow. You know, we get the feisty brummy teenager Susanna and Judith's not around there. So I'm always very happy to see someone giving Judith a voice and a space. And of course, what the novel does so well is give the child's point of view as well as the mother's point of view. And um, Judith on stage is given some of the great dialogues that Maggie O'Farrell has given her Judith, which is thinking about what it means to be one half of a couple one half of a twin, just as 
Agnes is thinking about what it means to be one half of a married couple when your husband deals with grief differently from you. So themes and pairs are very nicely depicted in the adaptation as they are in the novel. You know, things are paired and then they're split apart and then they have to find some way of negotiating the world in this new ontology. Mm. Laurie, I feel I have wonderful news for you that I must share with you. Go which ahead. is that last night I went to a lecture, I went to the inaugural A Room of One's Own Lecture at Newnham in Cambridge, and it was given by Ali Smith. And at a point in the lecture, which of course it being Ali Smith was incredibly creative and playful rather than a sort of straight chronology, but she's imagining a figure of a writer who encounters a sort of mysterious child. And we as sitting in the auditorium listening to this were kind of spellbound, but didn't know who this child was. And then we learn, finally, the child gives her, Ali Smith, the writer who's considering her lecture and what she might say about the subject of a woman's of one's own. She gives her the name Jude. And we suddenly understand who this, who this mysterious figure is. And I think that might be very much to your interests. That's great. Yes, that is grist to my mill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was quite wonderful. There we go. It was worth you coming on, Laurie, to get that snippet. <laughs> This is where you hear it all. Yeah. I feel I should say that, um, so it's on in, it's got a run on in Stratford now, and then it's coming back in the autumn, it's coming to London. So there is a bit more of a, a possibility of seeing it. But thank you so much for sort of helping us to, to realise it, Laurie. Many thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Great pleasure. Still to come on the show, we talk to the witty and insightful Curtis Sittenfeld, whose subjects range from first ladies to romantic comedies. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. The novelist Curtis Sittenfeld is perhaps best known for her forays into the world of American politics via her novel American Wife, which bore some similarity to the life of First Lady Laura Bush, and Rodham, an imaginative what might have been take on Hillary Clinton. Her latest romantic comedy is altogether different and immerses us in the world of an American sketch show much like Saturday Night Live. There, our heroine Sally, a writer on the show, becomes involved with a famous guest host. But can their love story survive his celebrity? We were delighted to be able to intercept Curtis on her whistle-stop visit to London and ask her to tell us more. Curtis, we have nabbed you, basically. You're in the middle of your trip. In fact, your trip is nearly over, but you've still got many things to squeeze in. We've nabbed you in your hotel. Thank you for coming to the UK. Thank you for finding time for us. How are you? Um, I'm good. Thank you for finding time for me. I'm, I'm <laughs> delighted to, to talk to you. Well, we have talked before, haven't we, um, relatively recently about this novel with the writer Marion Keyes, but we did it via a screen, and that was such a joyful conversation. And I think I learned so much that I wasn't expecting to learn about you both. And one of the things was a shared love of Danielle Steele, <laughs> which I, fe- I feel incredibly sure that our listeners would like to know more about. Well, okay, so I have to say full disclosure that I have not read a Danielle Steele novel for a while, but I did in my youth. So I'm now 47, so this is going back, you know, 30 to 35 years. But I first, I was in fourth grade um, when I first read a Danielle Steele novel. I actually can't, can't even remember. My classmate Dana <laughs> lent it to me. And so I think I would have been, I think I was nine, nine or ten years old. Yeah. I cannot claim that I have read her most recent offering, but but yes. But it, but it was kind of foundational yeah. in, oh. in that way. And there's, it's amazing how many writers I talk to with something like that comes up. I'm thinking of... Uh, the writer Carmela Shamsi, in her most recent novel, has her teenage girl protagonists reading all the Judith Krantz and oh. Lays and Jackie Collins, and it had come straight out of her life. We're very snobby about reading, and that's one of the things that romantic comedy really tackles head-on. So there was a reason for me asking about <laughs> Danielle Steele. I was just going to, yeah, I was just wondering when we would get to reason, and we did, which is great. Romantic comedy is kind of a novel that does what it says on the tin. It is, it is a romantic comedy. Just tell us about it. It's very different from your other books. Tell us about it, how it came about. Um, well, in some ways, the, the title came about um, almost maybe before the book did. So, um, my family was watching a lot of Saturday Night Live during the pandemic, and I would think to myself, um, someone 
should write a script for a, or like a screenplay for a romantic comedy where there's a woman who works at a show like Saturday Night Live, a writer, and you know, she kind of writes a sketch making fun of the phenomenon which exists in real life where men from the show who are talented but kind of ordinary looking date these super famous, super successful household name female celebrities who are guests on the show, whether it's Ariana Grande or Emma Stone or Scarlett Johansson. Um, and the writer should write a sketch saying this would never happen with a female writer and a gorgeous, super famous male celebrity. And then she has chemistry with, with the guest host that week. And then a few months passed, and I, I thought, oh, um, like that screenplay, maybe it should be a novel, and maybe the person who writes it should be me. And so, <laughs> so the the kind of romantic comedy part, like it almost it almost was waiting for me, you mm. know, for the for the taking in the title and the the premise. I mean, some, sometimes you don't know what you know, or you don't you don't even you've had an idea, or you think you've made a joke, and then you're like, oh no, maybe I should spend two years writing that book. <laughs> well, we're, we're very glad you did. It, it seemed to me that, I mean, like Alex says, it, it, is, it is romantic comedy. It's ridiculous of me to say that, because that's what it's called, but it is. But it also seemed to me that it is about work, almost as much as it's about that, which is really, just really interesting to have a book that really examines a workplace and what's fun and what's successful and, uh, and what is and what isn't. What, why did you want to do that? Um, you know, it's funny because I I went to graduate school at the Iowa Writers Workshop more than 20 years ago, although I think I was very shaped by it. And I one of the professors, Frank Conroy, he was then the director of the workshop, he would say that readers are fascinated by process. And I've always remembered, I mean, I, mean, I feel that way as a reader, where just sort of like the nitty gritty of how something works or how someone spends their days. And I felt like, you know, I'm really interested in how the people at Saturday Night Live, which is called the Night Owls in the book, but I'm interested in how, you know, they they start having meetings on a Monday and then they put on an almost 90-minute live show on Saturday and they spend a lot of the time in between brainstorming, not sleeping, revising. There's, you know, whole crews coming up with, you know, costumes, makeup, sets. It's this... And, and it's, you know, for me as an American... Um, SNL is this sort of, you know, cultural icon, but I didn't know like piece by piece or minute by minute how it works. So it was so much fun to research that. Well, what's so interesting, particularly about that, because you get to it right away, is seeing all those sketch writers and the people who work on the show in the pitch meetings and kind of going head to head and knowing that you have to put a certain number of sketch ideas through and some will get taken further, but that doesn't mean they're going to get live how did you go about the research did you go into saturday night live and sit in those kinds of meetings i wish i had i mean i did i, I those are sort of two separate answers i i did go and watch a dress rehearsal which is just before the live show i did not sit in on any meetings and i did not have any behind the scenes access and so so basically i just sort of i probably read about um 10 memoirs by current or former cast members there's also there's like an oral history 
a 750-page oral history that's such a fun read um, that starts when the show starts in 1975 and goes almost to the present. There's a documentary by the actor James Franco that covers like a week in the life of the show. Um, I did interview two people who've worked on the show in the recent past. There's podcasts where comedians, sometimes it's like a comedian who always wishes they had been on the show interviewing a comedian who has been on the show. Sometimes it's like one comedian who was on the show interviewing another comedian, like, you know, Conan O'Brien was a writer for the show, and it could be him interviewing, um, you know, like David Spade or like Chris Redd or something. So it was really fun doing the research. Like, it was such a, such a kind of escapist pleasure. And then, of course, you put this love story into it, uh, and it is about what the head writer, Sally, who's amazingly successful, but kind of out of the game romance-wise. She has a sort of friends with benefits kind of situation going, but even that's not going that well because she doesn't seem to like the guy an awful lot. I think you're a bit sorry for the guy sometimes. I'm not sure. We'll come on to that. He's but not great, the guy, He's is not he? great, Gene. No, he's not Jean, great, he's not. is he? Anyway. But she's not great to him either, I suppose. No, okay. Anyway, we're assessing this now behind your back, uh, Curtis. So there she is. The guest host comes on. He's a very, very charismatic and also rather sweet musician with a schmaltzy hit to his name. Most unlikely thing ever, and that's where it goes. Just tell, tell us about the pairing and about yeah. these two characters. So, he, I mean, he's, he's very, very successful. She immediately says, like, her own description of him is extremely successful and famous and cheesy is her word. Like, she doesn't really respect his music, although it emerges, which she doesn't even herself realize this at first. She's heard maybe three of his songs while she's, like, lying in the chair at the dentist's office or, you know, buying shoes in a department store. She does not, she's not really comprehensively familiar with his music. And as you say, he is, he is definitely a nice guy, although she herself is skeptical of that or like it's almost like she she has this way of seeing the world that's self-defeating and she's strangely committed to that you know that view even even when like it, life could be better there could be other options but there's still a part of her that that sort of clings to her like negative outlook can i ask about the the gender there's a lot of very interesting gender stuff going on in there and almost at the end there's an almost an indication that it's moving beyond because because she herself says that she recognizes that you know the kids have now gone somewhere else with that is it it seemed to me that in some ways that, that it was a gender swap of the very traditional romantic comedy because she's the commitment phobe and is that is that all deliberate is a silly word of course it's deliberate why did you do that <laughs> um i mean you know it's funny because I'm not even... I, other people have have made the same observation that she's sort of more skittish than he is. I think she's, she's more than she's a commitment phobe. I think she's, like, profoundly insecure. Mm, and yeah. I, th I think that something I was really interested in exploring is how, you know, you know, she's in her late 30s, which is... And so is Noah, which is a little bit older than the typical, you know, rom-com um, protagonist. But I think that 
you can be a kind of poised, competent, professional adult who's in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s, and but you can still have these areas where you're super insecure or nervous and and not what we think of as adult-like at all. Like it can be like a person who is very successful but is you know too fearful to drive a car or you know someone like Sally. Sally just kind of. And she was married and divorced when she was in her 20s, but she's she's essentially not sure if she's sort of worthy of the kind of love that she wants. Like, I think she thinks, I'm, I'm worthy of, like, a subpar love, like this, the <laughs> friends with benefits who's not, not that much of a friend and not that much of a benefit. Um, but she's not sure if she, if she sort of deserves real love. So I think that that's, like, her essential struggle is, you know, what does she feel like she deserves and if she you know decides that she deserves more can she kind of get out of her own way and receive it and then something intercedes you big time i mean this is as lucy has said it's a work novel it's a romantic comedy it's also a pandemic novel and that happens in real time in the book just did that happen because it happened to you as you were starting to write it. Did it start out without a pandemic part? Um, n- no. So actually, I in spring of 2020, my novel Rodham came out, and I would have conversations like this, and people would say, what are you going to write next? And I would say, I want to write something short and fun. And I started working on another book, and it took me about... Um, six months to realize that it wasn't short and it wasn't fun. And so then I was kind of, you know, casting about, it, at that point, it's like the summer of 2021. And I, I very, it is kind of psychologically strange in retrospect, although it didn't seem like this at the time, that I really consciously wanted to write a fun, happy, escapist novel. And that was, it was like a very clear decision. And I thought like, romance and comedy like what what more you know could you ever ask for what could be a more irresistible combination and then I did make the choice obviously to insert the pandemic so it's it seems like that's kind of contradictory on my part but I think in some ways I feel less this way now already you know it's almost two years have passed but it it felt to me like if you are going to write a novel set in or after 2020 like you you have to reckon with the pandemic or you have to convey that it's a parallel universe where the pandemic didn't happen or some I mean I I actually think right now a, a writer could write a novel set in 2023 and you could you know it could be like a 300 page novel that has a sentence or two about the pandemic I mean you know and, and it's obviously like like of course traveling on book tour I still think well am I going to get COVID or like when am I going to get COVID when's the part that I get COVID I mean, and I have had it but I think it felt more like oh it's just a feature of life now when I was writing it's it also the the sort of most pandemic-y bit, if I can call it that, that the section in the middle when they're talking to each other on email felt like, in a way, very old-fashioned, like an epistolary mm, novel. Absolutely. Was that a, was that a very conscious, uh, I'm going to kind of go back a few hundred years? Well, it, I did end up, you know, obviously the pandemic was terrible and, you know, we're still sort of existing um, in parts of it, but... Um, I think that for these characters, so, um, you know, Noah has been touring for for decades, um, and 
Sally works very long hours at the TV studio. The pandemic happens. He goes to his mansion in Los Angeles. She leaves New York and um, drives home and is staying in sort of like the small house of her childhood with her stepfather and her stepfather's beagle. They're both more bored and more isolated than they've probably been in their entire adult life. And so even though you know, the pandemic is such a negative, collective, global experience. It also, I think, was a moment for a lot of people of kind of like, you know, reassessing their priorities or the structure of their lives. And it was this opportunity for these two specific people to kind of actually connect, which felt optimistic or hopeful to me as a writer. It was amazing to read that, but exactly as Lucy said, here we are in a kind of proper old-fashioned epistolary novel. And they, the point really about that is that they, that is absolutely where they get to know each other. Mm. And they have to be completely no holds barred and really emotionally uh, f available and free and honest. And then there's that kind of wonderful bit where they worry about whether they make missteps and if somebody doesn't answer, and then they do make a misstep. And just writing that must have been kind of so interesting to you. It's writing in a different form, isn't it? Yeah, it was it was really fun. And it's it, I, I mean, weirdly, like sometimes I think like somebody will say, you know, where do you get your ideas or like, w w you know, what made me think like, oh, an email section is a good idea. And I almost feel like the reason I'm a writer is that I have all these ideas for, for <laughs> fiction or like that I think to myself, oh, I should I should write a novel and it should have like a huge email section in the middle of it. That's like a kind of email flirtation or courtship or something like there's, um, I don't know, it's just, it's almost like that seems to me like a normal thought to have. Like, like I, I will do that. I mean, I don't know what, if like somebody else might be like, I will run a marathon, which is not, not a thought that I would think to myself or like, I will do this. But it just, it's sort of, I, I mean, I think that I like to tell myself stories or like I go through situations and in life something almost happens and then in fiction, I make the thing that almost happens really happen, and so it's sort of more dramatic. Mm. Can I ask, this is not a purely literary question, I'm afraid, it's about the beagle. Ah. It's about the beagle. <laughs> yeah, the beagle. And I was gonna talk about the beagle anyway, because actually she's very, she's a very nice presence, and she's one of the things, you make the point that, that she anchors, she very much helps the relationship between Sally and her stepfather, because it gives them something to talk about. And then I read, I'm not stalking you, I read a piece that was publicly available in The Guardian, that says that your that your neighbours got a beagle in the pandemic <laughs> and you used to well, look at it across really the fence. Though, aren't they? And then in the book, yeah, maybe. Yeah. In the book, there is a, the family across the fence looking at a beagle. Can I ask? Is, is there a little bit of art imitating life? Yeah. So it's funny because my family got a chihuahua during the pandemic, but I, this is I, this will make me sound like I'm bonkers but it's true I think I wanted to respect my chihuahua's privacy so I made <laughs> I, I made the dog into yeah. a beagle so she didn't feel violated <laughs> but yeah we do our neighbors I actually the funny thing is our neighbors got a beagle and then maybe a year and a half later they got a second beagle and oh. so and and our little chihuahua is so she has such little legs and she's so sweetly lazy that she we can't really take her for like a long walk. So sometimes my friend will say, 
let's go for a walk. And she'll give me one of her beagle, you know, and then she'll take the other beagle. And and to me, a beagle seems enormous. And I'll be like, <laughs> like a this is so unwieldy. <laughs> and yeah, like I'm being made to work so hard with your dog. <laughs> yeah, but but, but I love I'm my I'm not friend. wrong, am I, about beagles? They're kind of bonkers, aren't they? I mean, they want to go their own way. I mean, so again, living with a chihuahua, like I think a chihuahua <laughs> might sort of set the bar high for neurotic dogs. I mean, I, I, yeah, I heard they're the beagles. This family's beagles are very sweet and funny. I mean, they do they do that like kind of crooning thing a lot. Where yeah, and or like they'll even like see me in the porch, and I and I feel like they'll be like alert, alert, you know, like it's Curtis, like oh. <laughs> now. We'll just briefly move on from the beagle, Lucy. I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. Uh, no, sorry no, 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 no. to lower the tone by like making a... you talk about dogs. No, no, no. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, I'm actually having this feeling. Maybe you should um, embark on a dog podcast, a pet podcast, a pet a podcast. Dog That's the next yeah, one. We've got a dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Does that exist? That must exist. Let, quick, let's do let's a new start one. It books right and now. dogs. We've got Later books today. and gardens, and then we'll do books and dogs. Exactly. I love the relationship between. Uh, I was, I'm dog, not going to say the, the dog. Beagle. No, I'm getting on to humans now. Yeah. Between Sally and her stepfather. And I thought it was another way of kind of bucking the trend of, I don't know, a novel where you would expect that to be a really complex and mm. difficult and dark relationship. Um, Sally's mother has died and it is something that's really palpable in the book without ever being re plonked mm. there in a very ostentatious kind of way, but you're really aware of her grief. Mm. And the relationship we, she has with her stepfather is just wonderful. And I just, can you talk about that a bit? It's interesting because, I mean, I think there's like a stereotype about Midwesterners in the US and that's maybe similar to a British stereotype. And of course, I don't know if either of them is true or if it's, you know, generational, but where it's like, you don't talk a lot about your feelings. Do you feel like, is that is that a stereotype of British people, do you think? Oh, yes. Yes, <laughs> very much so, so, yes. so I think I think there's like a sort of Midwestern stereotype of, you know, you don't, like you sort of make lots of chit chat about like the weather or like the driving route that you took to someone's house or maybe like the food, but you don't talk about these huge, events or like your deepest emotions and so I mean so so that's like a relationship that I mean I I was raised in a I think a more talkative than average family although there's still plenty of things that you know we don't discuss but um but I I think that I wanted to show a sort of yeah like a, a relationship where they don't it's not like a particularly enlightened relationship or it's not like they've hashed everything out but it's actually still a positive and sweet mm. relationship which I think mm. is a real thing like you don't have to get deeply into everything with everyone or there can be it can be like you know like like obviously Sally's mother m you know married her stepfather Jerry it's not like Sally picked him so it's kind of like we have randomly encountered each other in this life and we we like each other which again I mean that's like 90% of relationships is like we've randomly encountered each other and then and either like we annoy each other or we like each other it's it was one of the things that that made me think that it's actually a really subversive book even mm. though it's called romantic comedy and it is a romantic comedy Agreed. and it's but I thought it just it's overturning or underturning or just it's just not it's not going into any of the places that people might have expected it to go. And and that's all deliberate as well, I guess. 
it's funny. I mean, I don't even know how deliberate it is. Like, I definitely think um, very specifically in terms of, like, the characters and, like, the plot. Not that it's a super dramatic external plot, but, like, what I want to happen in scenes or, you know, what I want someone to say or to feel. And then I feel like the, you know, quote-unquote social commentary organically emerges. But I, I, I can very sincerely say I did not think to myself, like, I want to take on the romantic... Com I mean, I, it was really, again, like, I, I was like, oh, that's a, that's a funny title. You know, like, it's kind of meta, obviously. And, and Sally herself is a writer, so she's very familiar with, like, the conventions of storytelling, and she aspires to write romantic comedy screenplays, although she doesn't ever exactly get around to it. So I feel like, I mean, it's, I definitely think there is sort of social or political commentary in my books, but I, I actually rarely start with that. It's more just like the situations. Yeah. And, and obviously the characters, because we must mention, of course, Rodham, you said the book before this, yeah. and American Wife. I mean, I think you, you write all sorts of different books. I really love, for example, your, your novel, Sisterland. Um, you, you're always interested in different subjects, but you've, you have become associated with writing those surveys of political life and public life and how they affect women, haven't you? I, I, yeah, I guess. I mean, obviously, I made, I made the choice to do it twice. I mean, it's funny because some people will say, like, your first lady novels, and, and even <laughs> I will sometimes say, like, my first lady novels. But technically... Rodham is about like a woman who runs for president. It's mm. not actually about a first lady because in that version she doesn't marry no. Bill Clinton. Yeah. Um, I think you should tell us yeah, if yeah, you yeah. can and if you can bear to, and it's not too impertinent a question, where this imagination might take you next. Huh. <laughs> um, you know, so it's funny. I feel like I've done this very like um, misguided thing where when I, I say, oh, I started writing a book. And it wasn't short and wasn't fun. And, and I think a part of me, there's like a 50% chance I'll go back to it. And then, I, and then like, you know, two years from now, I'll be like, hey, everyone, remember that book? And all you knew about it was it's not short and it's not fun. Like, would you like to read it? But it's, um, I mean, that one was, it's sort of about, like, it does take place in the, in the Midwestern United States. Surprise, surprise. And it's like a woman who, I mean, I think that, that part of the reason when I wrote it, like, it was like, it's the the woman who's the protagonist is she's a history professor and she's she has three young children and I think she just feels like her life is a logistical mess and so I, I think that was why I was like oh I just can't do this like, <laughs> but I might I might feel ready to go because there are I think I'm telling you actually the least interesting parts of it but there are other parts of it that are very interesting to me. Okay. Okay. I, I know Dana, that wasn't much. No, we're a god to read your non-short, non-fun book. I we am wanna... really looking forward to your yeah. non-short, non-fun book about logistical mess. About logistical mess. About, about logistical mess. <laughs> um, but I think what we I mean we've asked you all these questions and I. I think, but Lucy, we need to say it, and we, we just—it this was such a joy to read this book. It was so, it was such a pleasure. It was a, it was a I real read it first, positive pleasure. And then I said, right, you, you read it now. We're going to go and meet Curtis. You read it now, and you just basically retreated to the sofa with. with I really did, and I, and I thought sometimes you think I have to read for work, and oh, yeah. often it's absolutely wonderful. Not always, but you know, all of that. But I had to read for work, and and my husband came in or something and said, do you want to? go out and I was like no I'm reading this book no, you're mad. yes <laughs> no you have to all leave me alone while I read this and it is it's actually it's it's pretty rare it was just such a pleasure 
So um, I don't know how to say it. It's not particularly short, but it is fun. It's not, ah, o- it's it's, not it's only short-ish. fun. It's yeah. shortish. It's yeah. shortish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The listeners, it's shortish. <laughs> it's very fun. <laughs> Uh, we're very, very grateful. Oh, really thank you. To, to, oh, to no, it delights it. Like I, the whole, I, I definitely feel like I wanted, I, I really like desperately wanted to write a book to kind of give myself pleasure yeah. and give other people pleasure. And it's like the, it's so gratifying and lovely. Like because of the feedback I am getting is people saying like I read it in twenty four hours or mm-hmm. I read it in forty eight hours or or like I was sick but it it made me feel better. So, and it's it's like what more could I want? Like it's it's lovely to hear. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. And safe trip home to the Chihuahua. Give her all love. I the can't wait. I know. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Laurie Maguire and Curtis Sittenfeld. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardee. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.